All right, so much ink has been spilt. Countless articles, countless books, many, many different pages in an attempt to deal with the subject of governance, especially in our time now, right? Like, especially in the midst of a, a divided country, a divided culture as it relates to the idea of governance. Essentially, the question is, what does it look like for a person or an organization to rightly govern others, you know? Like, what does it look like to govern in such a way um, that's just and that benefits the one being governed? Another way to put the question would be in broad leadership terms, and that's another major discussion in our time. What does it look like to lead others well? What does it look like to, you know, there's this mission that, that we have at Gospel Life Church. There's a mission that an organization has, a mission, a vision. What does it look like to lead people toward a vision? You know, what does it look like to bring people toward, toward some kind of end result? And in the context of the church, it's been, it's been really sad. It's been a sad season for a lot of people. Because in the, not gospel life, but broadly, there's a context of Christian pastors in Christian churches who are either forced to resign or, or, or who are fired, not always because of obvious moral failures or addictions, not because of embezzlement or fraud, but rather in the majority of cases more recently, it's because of the way in which they're leading others, lording it over the body of Christ, bullying people, seeking to be served rather than seeking primarily to serve. So, I mean, there have been podcasts that have delved into this in a more deep level even more recently with, like, the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Like, there's been a, a lot of talk about, like, what, why has this been the case? Pastors who are attempting to manipulate or control, leaders, elders in the church attempting to lead through manipulation and control, putting up anger oftentimes as a means of creating fear in a culture so that people will do what they want. Like to get the end result that they're looking for. And look, this has also been a cultural conversation related to the workplace. So if you're here this morning, and you know, regardless of what kind of business you're in or company that you're involved in, there's so many conversations right now about workplace culture. And that's a good thing because, listen, um, some organizations, leaders, they're being outed as toxic. Leaders and CEOs who, who, who haven't had Moral failures or addictions, embezzlement or fraud, but rather leading in a way that lords it over others, bullying people, seeking to be served primarily, attempting to manipulate and control, putting up anger as a means of getting what they want. Okay? It's a real problem. And it's a problem that comes with a question, because I think in the minds of a lot of people, if right leadership isn't manifested like that, we have a really hard time understanding, well, then how do you lead people toward a vision? You know, if the... Like, if right leadership isn't manifested by like, really creating the kind of pressure that's going to get the job done, that, that kind of manipulates and controls, really creating this kind of pressure in a workplace that often leads to shaming and therefore a toxic culture, because we all acknowledge that that part's not good, but then the question is, so how do you lead others well? Like, how do you bring about an end result? Like, how do you do it functionally? What does it look like? Because listen, the vast, vast majority of folks within the church today, within the evangelical church today, would agree that the above-mentioned tactics are, are toxic. You know, there's broad agreement that in these situations that are now very public, and, and there's been post-mortem investigations into these things, it's like, okay, that wasn't healthy. That wasn't good. That wasn't for the good of people, right? So there's vast majority of folks agree 
that's toxic, cultures that are built around the kind of pressure and shaming internally always lead to a toxic culture, it has no place within the church. So there's agreement there. But then oftentimes those same voices, even from within ourselves, will, will push back hard against a truly, what we call gospel life, a gospel-centered approach to ministry. They push back hard against the idea that spiritual growth or that bringing about the end result of discipleship comes primarily through grace at the cross, not through our work, not through our effort, but grace at the cross. And, and, and the same primary need that a non-believer has walking through the doors of a church is the same primary need that all of us have, that, that a believer who's believed as long as they can remember their entire lives have every single day. Every single day, you guys. So, so there's this internal voice within us. We, we recognize that's toxic leadership. But then there's this internal voice within us that says, no, 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 no. My spiritual growth is because I'm so mature. It's because I've grown up in my faith. It's because I'm told what to do in terms of like an itemized list of spiritual fruit that should show up in the life of a mature believer. You know? And I've checked off those boxes. I've attended church weekly. I've served in a variety of ways. I've gained trust. I've been faithful. I've learned to read my Bible in context. I have an active prayer life. Sure, the gospel got me into the kingdom. Wouldn't be here without it. Wouldn't be here without Jesus. But this effort, these good works, this is the primary reason for my spiritual growth. It's the primary reason why I deserve leadership. It's the primary, you know, like, but listen to me. What we see here in John 9, in this section of text, continuing on from last week, is that if you reject the reality that this good news of Jesus, like, is central, not only like some proposition to believe, but it's central to what saves us and also what sanctifies us. It's central to what brings us into the kingdom, and it's central to what allows us to make progress in the kingdom. Like if you, if you have a view of leadership that's based on what you need to do, having the right strategy, putting up the right number of chairs or stairs or bases and moving around the circle, I'm telling you the natural outcome of that is the toxicity that we see all over the place. It has to be. I'm going I'm to argue from the text I think you'll agree by the end. That's what the text is saying. So um, we, we see that here because here in John chapter 9, we see two means of governance. I have this outline, real simple outline, two points. Um, two means of governance in the text. I think this is the argument in the text. I have it in your liturgy packet, so you can look there. I invite you to, to, to take notes. If you're taking notes, that's great. I invite you to have your Bibles open and looking there. Um, so, but as you do that, let's remember the context. In the first 17 verses of chapter 9, do you remember from last week, Jesus and his disciples encounter who? They encounter this man who's born blind. The disciples ask a question that's rooted in their own gospel confusion, and it's a confusion that we'll see continue on through this morning's text. The, the, the confusion asks the question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Now this confusion, we call it confusion because it's rooted in something that we'll call moralism. Okay? Moralism, which is the idea that if you're good enough, God will bless you. And that if you, you know, lack any blessing, or if you experience any kind of pain as a Christian, as a believer, it must be because you did something wrong. Like it's self-inflicted suffering. Because if you, were, if you were just adhering to the right things, God would bless you, right? So we call this moralism. 
And we get a front row seat into what part, into part of what moralism leads to, which is a judgmental attitude towards others when they suffer, insecurity and deep anxiety within ourselves when we suffer. And Jesus uses this as a teaching opportunity. He tells them, no, the reason for this man's suffering wasn't his sin, but rather God's sovereignty. He heals the man, and amazement spreads around the crowd who now hear the man's story, but there's also opposition from the religious leaders. If you want to hear more about the first 17 verses, go back to last week and listen. But here we see, in the opposition against Jesus, we see another end result of moralism, starting in verse 18. The Jews did not believe, look at verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight, this man, right? Until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? So to be clear, when John refers to the Jews in his gospel account, and we've talked about this a lot, he's referring to the religious leaders who oppose Jesus, primarily. Like, he has variations of how he's using it throughout his account, but for the most part, when we see this phrase, the Jews, he's referring to the religious leaders in Jerusalem who oppose Jesus, who oppose the teachings of Jesus, and we're going to see why they oppose the teachings of Jesus in a very central way this morning. So they've They've questioned the man born blind already in last week's text. They didn't believe his testimony. And in fact, they pushed back so hard uh, and, and even pressed his parents, which demonstrates the reality. They've already decided. They've already made a decision on the matter. They've already prepared to dismiss what the man has to say All right, about his own healing. Essentially, they're trying to make the pieces of this puzzle as they hear this story fit their narrative. You know, like... They don't want to follow the evidence where the evidence leads. They're trying to gain the evidence that helps them understand from their mindset what happened, okay? Um, but they've already acknowledged in verse 16, if you look back a couple verses, it appears like a miracle has occurred. And that's what the evidence seems to show, but they very much come to a conclusion that's not possible, all right? So the, the only explanation is they must be missing, you know, some key piece of evidence that's going to confirm their, narr their narrative to be true, all right? They're coming in super biased against us. They have these, they have these preconceived ideas, super biased. Uh, so there are really four points they focus in on as they talk to the parents. First they say, look, um, they're thinking, maybe this is a, simply a case of mistaken identity. You know, the crowd sees this guy, he's making all these claims, but it's not really him, it's a hoax. It's a guy who knows he looks something like him, he's trying to pull a fast one. And while that might fool the crowd, it won't fool his parents. So they want to know, is this your son? Second, is it the case, you know, if it's the case that, it, that this is their son, can they confirm that he was born blind before he had this encounter with Jesus? Like maybe his blindness was just temporary because of some external factor, some dust that got in his eyes or whatever, but it wasn't nearly as bad as it was made out to be. So maybe it was just temporary blindness. Third, in the case that yes, it's their son, and yes, he was blind before the incident, can, can they confirm he was born this way? That he was born blind? That actually this is something that, there was a sense of hopelessness attached to. Or, or is this a situation where he went blind later on, he got treated, it's good. Fourth, if he's their son, if he was blind before the incident, and if he was actually born blind, like if all that stuff is true, what explanation can they give? Like maybe they have a view on this healing that minimizes the role of Jesus. They can shed some light on this, again, from their vantage point of the narrative which would be like Jesus had nothing to do with this, okay? Um, 
Verse, so so how, how, how do his parents answer these kind of four points of objection? Verse 20, his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. So they, they deal with the first three points with one simple sentence. Yes, he's our son, not mistaken identity. Yes, blind before the encounter. Yes, born blind. But when it comes to giving an explanation, they hedge big time. You know, we, we see how uncomfortable they are with the line of questioning in verse 21. But how he now sees, so here's their explanation. How he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. This is really striking. They refuse to give any indication of Jesus' healing. They don't support their son's testimony. They don't have any kind of positive word of like, I've never known him to lie before, and like, look, I just told you, he's our son, he was born blind, his blindness was real, now he sees, so, so I, you know, like, I, it seems like the look, no indication that the Lord has done any kind of a work, right? And think about that, like, I think John really is playing on some of these emotions in the text uh, very intentionally, because this is your boy, you know, this is your, your son or your daughter, this is your child, and they, they were born blind, and now, you know, we're going to see much older, they can see, you'd be rejoicing. And, and very likely, like, you'd want to give glory to the one who did it. You'd want to, like, give some kind of thanks to the one who was able to do this. But they don't. They punt on the question. They punt on it. Totally. Why? Why are they so cagey? Verse 22 tells us, His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, the parents said, he's of age, ask him. And, you, and you know, it's here that we actually see the first of two means of governance coming into view clearly. Two means of leadership, right? Different types of leadership. Though it's already been well established in John's gospel, we've actually talked about it a little bit before, but it's this, okay? First of all, we see, very simple, very true. Moralism governs by fear. Moralism governs by fear. It this idea of moralism produces fear in the heart of a person adhering to it because what does it produce? It produces, and what does it come out of? Self-interest, right? Self-interest, self-protection. Okay, because listen, moralism, the idea that if you're good enough, God's going to bless you, suffering, self-inflicted, you know, because you were, must, must have been unfaithful, must have done something wrong. It's entirely self-centered. It's like, I'm acting in order to get something out of this for me. Right? It's centered on me and what I need to do to receive the blessing. It's centered on me and what the good thing I must have done or the bad thing I must have, you know, the, the thing that must have gone wrong. And so it's very, very naturally leads to a kind of self-protection or self-interest in that kind of culture that produces fear. It's really, it's impossible to avoid. Not only that, but moralists in leadership will always govern by fear. They have to. It's, what, it's just what it produces because as they lead, the worth or value of the people under their leadership will be established by what those people do for them. Right? Like that's just the natural adherence of moralism. Your worth or value under moralism is grounded in what you do. So if you're a moralistic leader, the worth or value of the people under your care is entirely geared around what you can do for your leader. Right? And so there's fear. It's not based in truth. It's not, it's not stirring people to change and transformation 
in, in right ways, as we'll see, it's manipulating a certain response. You're trying to manipulate through fear. How? So there's a variety of ways moralism can manifest itself in this way, but the text gives us one clear example, retribution. The parents know full well, if they don't measure up to expectations here, what's going to happen? Pharisees will put them out of the temple. Retribution. They'll be excommunicated, removed from the very center of their faith, removed in a lot of ways from their own community, removed from their friends and family and neighbors. The, cent the central, central place of worship for them is the temple. Removing them from, the, from their community. It's a serious threat. It has, it has yes, religious implications uh, that, that are very serious for them. It also has a societal or, or um, social connotations too. Because this is, this is their community. So listen, this is unfortunately commonplace in many workplace environments. And it's even more commonplace in religious organizations. If you feel like you can't bring honest critique to a church leadership because of how they might paint the reputation of those who disagree with them. You know, if they have a, if they have a track record of painting reputation a certain way. Or how they might seek out retribution of those who disagree from within the workplace. And this isn't just something that happens in churches. It happens across all organizations. But if that's the case, it's rooted in moralism. That's, that's the reality. That's why it's happening. Okay? When they, so, so when the parents say, he's of age... It just means he's old enough to give legal testimony in court, which may, makes him at least 13. Could be a few years older, right? I think we hear like young man in our cultural context is like, he's like 29. Probably not. He's probably in his teens. Maybe not. We don't know. We don't know. But it's totally unreasonable to think that the mom and dad here don't know who performed the healing at this point. Totally unreasonable. Of course they do. Of course they did. Their son's been shouting it from the rooftops. He's their boy. You know, wouldn't you know? He's their boy. They talk to him. They're excited with him. They have to be. They're just being super cagey, super careful, not saying a word about it. But careful or not, even with their hedging, even with their punting on the question to avoid retribution, like their testimony already establishes the reality of the miracle. It's crazy. There's nothing they can really do about it. There's nothing the Pharisees can do about it. It's not mistaken identity. It's not a hoax. It's not a salve for the eyes that the doctors gave him a while back that improved his sight. It wasn't like dust in his eyes. He was genuinely blind since birth. He could see nothing. Now he sees. So two things are true at this point in the text. Their testimony establishes clearly that Jesus performed a miracle. But number two, they're not going to call it a miracle. That's, that's the reality. And in this case, like, they're not going to say it, but they, they just said it. That's what's happening. And in this case, the reason for the tap dance around the obvious, because that's what's happening, is moralism. Moralism governs by fear. Moralism, it, it always does. It creates fear in the heart. It motivates by fear. And John wants his readers to know that this is the case because they're being confronted with the same kind of moralistic monster that the, the readers of this, this gospel account are being confronted with all of the time with the same moralistic monster that the parents are being confronted with here. Like, that's why John adds, look at verse 23, and think about the detail of the word that he uses here. The Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, to be Christ, 
He was to be put out of the synagogue. The Jews had already agreed. So he's talking to these, you know, who's he writing to? Jews and, and Greeks, God-fearing Greeks, spread across Greece. So that's his audience. And he's saying, look, you're already dealing with this. They're already taking this kind of like retribution from within the synagogue. But he said, this is how it's been all along. The religious leaders had already agreed during Jesus' earthly ministry that um, if anyone confesses him to be the Messiah, if anyone confesses him to be the Christ, they should be put out of the temple. Moralism was running rampant right away. So he says, this thing that you're dealing with now has always been the case. And we're going to actually see why that's the case the more we get into this. So John wants his readers to see the contrast now. And he actually wants them to see two contrasts. He wants to see the contrast between how the parents respond, which is out of fear, because moralism governs by fear, and how their son responds, who responds entirely differently than mom and dad. So that's one of the contrasts, because he wants us to see the primary contrast, which is the way the Pharisees lead the people and govern the people, and the way Christ leads his people. That's the main contrast. And because of this difference between the way that the Pharisees govern and the way that Christ governs, you see this difference in how the parents respond and how the man responds. So here's where we see the, the different response. Starting in verse 24, so for the second time, they call the man who's, who had been blind. So they already called him once, totally disregard him the first time. Call the parents, backs up everything he said. All right. And now calling him again. They say, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Though I was blind, now I see. Here we begin to see a different kind of response. One that doesn't really care how the religious leaders respond to him or what they do to him. Because he already has all he needs in Jesus. Okay, so whereas moralism governs by fear, here we see secondly in, in your notes, the gospel governs by grace. The gospel governs by grace. And, and the reality that the gospel governs by grace changes everything about how the guy is freed to respond to this so, so differently. Okay, um, The way we see it playing out here is by way of a serious theological dilemma for the Pharisees. Like the Pharisees have a full-blown theological crisis on their hands here in John 9, because on the one hand, look, um, they've reached a con consensus on the point that Jesus is a sinner. That he's just like the rest of us, that he's a sinner. Not like them, but like the rest of us. They had some internal disagreement earlier, but now it seems they're united, because probably both because of the pressure from the majority of religious leaders to, to see Jesus a certain way, and also because of what one commentator refers to as the groundswell of antithopy during this time for Christ. There's this growing hatred, this growing animosity for Jesus and what he's proclaiming. We're going to see exactly why as we continue through this. So on the one hand, they've reached this consensus. Jesus is a sinner. He's like actively in sin. But on the other hand, he performed an obvious miracle. Right? The testimony of the parents, they hedged does nothing but confirm this basic level of reality. So the conundrum appears to be that a known sinner, on their view, someone who is, from their perspective, an evil and wicked man, has performed a miracle that can only be attributed to God. Okay? Like, a demon's not going around healing blind people, granting sight. The way the Old Testament describes sight to the blind 
was, was always in terms of like how God would actively work through his Messiah. So like we, we think about places like uh, here in the book of Isaiah, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. Like this is, like Jesus comes to give sight to our eyes. Satan wants us blind and deaf and dumb. He wants us not seeing truth or hearing the truth. Jesus comes to give sight, to, to, to unstop our ears so that we can hear and understand truth. So again, there. They're already prepared not to believe the dude's testimony. They think he must be missing something here, so they, that they must be missing something, so they press in again. Give glory to God. We know that this Jesus is a sinner. And when they say give glory to God, it's important we understand, they actually don't mean you should praise God for what he did. That would be right and appropriate. They also don't mean you should praise God, but not this Jesus. And I think a lot of people wrongly interpret that here. It makes sense why. But actually, this is a very common phrase. During this time that essentially in a legal uh, context simply means before God, own up, confess, admit the truth of the matter, admit it, admit that he's a sinner, admit that this Jesus is a lawbreaker. After all, this happened on the Sabbath. And so as it relates to the question that they're asking him, the man doesn't pretend to be a theologian who understands how Jesus might have broken the Sabbath. He doesn't pretend to be some like Sabbath expert. Some, some, uh, like they are on the oral, they claim to be on like the oral law of, of Sabbath. He only knows the transformation that, that has occurred in his life as a result of Jesus. That's all he knows. So that's what he sticks to. And listen to me. You don't have to be a theologian to have a powerful witness. I think we think that way. I think we think like, man. If I'm going to tell my friends and neighbors and coworkers about Christ, I've got to be some theologian. You know, like if I'm going to talk to my friends about Jesus, I've got to be some like Christian philosopher or world-class apologist kind of person. And I just, I'm not that. And, and, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't strive to learn more about God. I'm not saying that theology doesn't matter. I'm not saying that we shouldn't make an effort to know him more. Like I'd really encourage you, because of like our joy in knowing God, because of the joy of what he's done for us in Christ, we should want to know more. Like, I'd encourage you, go out and buy, like, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Read it cover to cover, then read it again, you know, alongside of the scriptures. You know, like these, grow in your knowledge of the Lord. Like, that's a, that's a good and godly thing, but you don't need to be a theologian to have a powerful witness or a powerful testimony. You just need to bear witness about the miracle that's occurred in your life. The miracle that's taking you from death to life. Like, we can tell our friends, neighbors, coworkers, even those who oppose the gospel, you know, maybe we can't answer all of your questions. Maybe we can't dot every theological I and cross every theological T, but one thing we do know, we were blind, now we see. You know, we, we were dead, now we're alive. We didn't know the truth, now we know the truth. And it's because of the work of God. They're not satisfied by this, however. Verse 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Like, this is a bit awkward for them. If they want to stick to their guns that Jesus is a sinner, they have to keep 
doing this. They have to keep going back over this, the same information, again and again, because the only explanation is that, that they're missing something. They have to, to be missing something, or else Jesus must be who he says he is, you know? And if Jesus is who he says he is, that's kind of the ballgame. If they're going to find fault with Jesus, they have to keep trying to dig up the same dirt. But the guy catches on that they have nothing, you know? He sees it's just a show, a charade, because they have nothing. So he uses this, like, mocking, sarcastic kind of wit that I find very effective in this moment. He concludes that the only explanation, like, we've been over this, you know, like, the only explanation as to why they're so insistent to hear his testimony over and over and over again must be that they want to become Jesus' disciples too. You know, and this, like, it really gets them. You know, it really pushes all the buttons. Because they know it's true. They know they're going over the same information over and over again, but hoping for a different piece to the puzzle that actually doesn't really exist. You know? They know that the multiple attestations of this testimony, the multiple witnesses corroborating that it's true, demonstrate that a miracle happened at the hand of Jesus, plain and simple. But they need to conclude that Jesus is a sinner. They know they're caught, so now they just start flinging insults at him. Verse 28, And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciples, but we're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken for, to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Like, we're better than you. You see moralism, like, rear its ugly head. The response is, positioning me above you to, to again, do what? To elicit fear. To elicit, like, oh, I better listen to these guys. To elicit this false authority that makes them serve the leader, right? We're better than you. We're of Moses. You're of a maniac. We have authority. You don't. And it's interesting that now they're just contradicting themselves from earlier in chapter 7. Because do you remember? That earlier in chapter 7, they claim to know where he comes from. They say, like, hey, we know where you come from, Jesus. Don't try to pull a fast one. And now what do they say? We don't know where he comes from. And, like, the hilarious thing is, and this account in John 9 is hilarious for a dozen reasons, but the hilarious thing is they contradict themselves, but they're actually wrong both times. It's masterful the way that John writes it. Because, like, typically when you contradict yourself, Usually one of those two times you'll be correct, <laughs> you know? Like, you'll say one thing, and then you'll hedge. But one of those two things are usually true. Here, they're, they're wrong both times. Because when they say, hey, we know where you come from, they're saying, we can evaluate you, Jesus. Like, we're able to evaluate the truth about who you are, and they can't. And now when they say, we don't know where he comes from, it's because they don't want to attribute this miracle to God. But they know it is. That's crazy. They're wrong on both counts. Verse 30, the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So again, he's not some theologian, but he knows, like, common sense, and he's actually agreeing with their primary point, that someone who's a sinner can't perform miracles from God, right? And, and so he draws attention to how crazy this is. Two chapters ago, you knew where he was from. Now, you know, you, you claim you don't, but he opened my eyes. It's nuts. Healing, healing of the blind, 
Super rare Old Testament occurrence. But nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere in Jewish tradition, do we have any example of someone being healed after being born blind. Indeed, as the man makes clear, never since the world began. But you know, you might read this. So it's obviously a miracle. It's obviously a miracle from God. But you might read verse 31, and you might say, but Jeremy, I thought you were talking about how moralism is bad. But look at verse 31. The man says, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And isn't that just moralism? Isn't this the idea that if you do God's will, you know, God listens to you? God will do what you say. He'll, he'll listen to you. And, but if you're a sinner, he won't listen. He can't listen. No, but listen. The whole point of this text is to tell us that that's true of everyone. Right? That it includes the Pharisees. Like God does not listen to sinners because sinners rebelled against God and now he, he can't. Our hearts are far from him. All of us. Every single one of us. It's true. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. This man is saying there's one of whom this is true, apparently. He's, he's actually drawing a contrast. He's saying, I couldn't have done this miracle. You couldn't have done this miracle. Only one who God listens to. Only one who's without sin. And there is someone who came who wasn't a sinner. Who's a worshiper of God who did his will. If, he, if it weren't the case, he could have done nothing. Verse 34, they answer him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us they cast him out. Like, um, they know his, his reasoning is irrefutable, evidenced by the reality that they don't try to refute it. They just pivot back to the moralistic claim the disciples made in the last chapter that his blindness must have been a result of his sin. They put him out of the temple. So, the, so they're offended that he doesn't just blindly follow their self-imposed authority and they respond in personal abuse. The context of John's final comment, and they threw him out, suggests that this is excommunication, the same thing that the parents feared, right? So it was, it was a threat. It was a legit threat. It was a means of trying to scare the people. They attempt to govern out of fear, but the man is given something else that enables him to speak out in the midst of opposition. He's given Jesus. Verses 35 to 41, Jesus heard that they cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Jesus said to him, you've seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you now. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now you say we now that you say we see, your guilt remains. A passage that I think is really very much in view here, as John writes this, especially of like readers and hearers of this gospel account during this time that John writes is Psalm twenty seven ten. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. His father and mother kind of forsake him. I don't know, just go ask him. They're scared. John essentially, like, he's received by the Lord. Like, John is completing the story here. Jesus taking the initiative. Finds the man who's cast out. Brings him to decisive and knowledgeable faith. Like, Jesus being the only one who is able to do this thing of worshiping God perfectly. 
of coming before the Father as one sent from God, now extends this very thing to the man so that he can rightly worship. It brings him to this faith that causes him to like bow down. People who say John's account must obviously not be talking about Jesus as God, like Jesus isn't claiming to be God here. What do you do? You know, sure, you have like before Abraham was, I am, that we looked at a few weeks ago. You have these I am statements in which Jesus is constantly pointing to himself as, as being from God. But what do you do in these passages when the man bows down to worship him and Jesus does not correct him? This is just obviously yet another instance in which John is showing us the deity of Christ. That Jesus is God himself entered into human history. And now John is, is showing us Christ and he's driving home some important leaders, some important lessons for his readers who are on the verge of conversion. He's telling them, listen, from the leaders who are over you now, opposition is to be expected. It's always been that way. But such opposition is met with courage and with openness to the revelation of Jesus. How does this happen? Through the initiative of Jesus. By sheer grace. Calling us to himself. Receiving us when the world rejects us because of him. Like, can we say, honestly, this morning, that we truly have all that we need in him? Can we say that we have all the acceptance we need in Jesus and therefore we have no need of acceptance from the world? Can we cling to him even in the midst of moralistic attempts to sway us by fear? How can we do those things? We do those things by clinging to his grace. We look to gospel graces. We find those graces repeatedly as we hear the gospel proclaimed in his word as we come together on Sunday and sing the words of gospel together and, and repeat them to one another as, as we preach the gospel, but also through the ordinances that Jesus gives the church, two of which will proclaim this exact same reality this morning. We're going to see baptism. I'm really excited. We see Adalas getting baptized. And, you know, there are others who are here who I know have even been on the fence about this, and we've had conversations. And I just want to say... If you're here this morning and you're like, man, for some reasons I've been putting this off, but I actually, I've, I feel led. This is what I want to do. I want to obey. Let me tell you again, like, baptism, this is not what saves us, but this is a picture of what saves us. This isn't what saves us, but it is a proclamation to others around us of what saves us. This isn't what saves us, but it's what saves it's what salvation generates in us, which is a heart that's grateful and, and, and joyous because of Jesus that now wants everybody else to know that I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus too. It's like a wedding ring, right? It's like, if I were to take off the wedding ring, which is a little humid today, so I'm not going to actively do it for, by way of illustration, but if I were to take this off, would it make me not marry? No. But what does this functionally perform? It lets others know. As long as I'm wearing it, this is a proclamation of my marriage to my wife, right? Baptism is a proclamation, a visible, tangible, symbolic proclamation of, of the fact that we were dead in our sins, but we were buried with Christ. We died in our old, to our old selves, and then we were raised to new life in Him, raised to a new way of life. And if you're here this morning and you're like, man, that new way of life allows me to, to like proclaim this to others, that yes, I believe you know, even in the midst of a world that doesn't want me to, 
I want to encourage you, like, come talk to the elders. Justin's going to be in the water anyway, you know. So, um, so we might as well take advantage of that, right? So if you're here this morning and it's like, man, I, I need to get baptized. Come talk to me. Talk to Pete, to, to Justin, to Matthew. And let's have that conversation because maybe this is a morning where, where you'd be able to do that. So in one way that we'll see this gospel proclaimed is through baptism in just a few minutes. The other way is here at the table. So if you didn't get a chance to grab one of these in the back, uh, there, I believe there are still some in the basket. But together we come and we, we come around this table that proclaims the body of Jesus broken for us. The blood of Jesus shed for us. We see these graces here at the table that enable us to go from here, not out of fear of how others might see us, but rather we go from here in assurance of, of how God sees us in Jesus Christ that we're fully accepted by him, so we have no need of acceptance by others, and so we can radically live a life that follows Christ. And so, um, as, you gather, as you grab those elements together, let's just quietly reflect on the nature of Jesus' forgiveness for us, the nature of his grace toward us, and then in a minute we'll partake of this together and, and then walk down to baptism together.